Insecure is an HBO comedy series that tells the story of two women, Issa and Molly, as they navigate the ups and downs of their relationships, careers, and their very own friendship, all while confronting the sometimes infuriating and sometimes awkward realities of living in LA as black women. Insecure was co-created by Issa Rae and Larry Wilmore, who brought on Prentice Penny to be the series showrunner, and they were all immediately on the same page. I had worked in a nonprofit before I was a writer. I've had situations where somebody literally in the writer's room and asked me what on fleek means. Like, I'd, I've had these, like, moments. And, and if you're a person of color, you you have these moments where you have to, where people ask you to explain things as if you're the arbiter of everything African-American or any person of color. This is Showrunners. I'm Kim Renfro, a culture reporter at Insider. A showrunner does lots of things, from directing to writing to making sure the right kind of paper cups are on set. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows that we love. In this episode of Showrunners, we talk with Prentice Penny about growing up in L.A., everything you need to know about how Insecure is made, and his new reality series called Upscale with Prentice Penny. So the first thing I really want to know is the story of Prentice. <laughs> what? Um, that could go lots of ways. Yeah. I mean, go wherever you want to go with it. I really want to know kind of how you got to where you are now and wherever the beginning of that was for you. How far How far back were we trying to go? We can go all the way back. Well, I grew up uh, in L.A. So, um, and I grew up in a time in the like late 70s, or early 80s. And I was the only child. And so for me, I didn't, and I grew up where there were a hell of a lot of like old grandparents, not like grandparents now who are like on Facebook and like who exercise and like, these are like old, you know, civil rights grandparents, like real grandparents. And uh, so what happened was when my parents divorced, my dad was in the Air Force. And so he moved back to um, Iowa where he was stationed. And my mom was a paralegal who started law school at night. So I spent a lot of time just with my grandparents. I was the only child, like I said. And so I spent a lot of time either watching TV and, and watching TV shows or kind of trying to entertain myself. And again, this is pre, you know, a lot of video game. I mean, you had the video game, but it was like the Atari. I mean, it was like, oh, it wasn't like tablets. Now like, I had to either like draw with real, you know, colors or write and entertain myself. And so I just sort of became entertaining myself by writing or making up stories or things like that. And that's sort of how I think a lot of that sort of all sort of came to be. I was the only child, loved to write, loved to create, was in the TV, and it kind of just all eventually became that. What were some of your favorite TV shows? Growing up, I love family shows because I think, like, back then, like, my my upbringing was, like, I would bounce around a lot, like a lot of divorced kids. Like, I used to love things that I felt like where families were a lot, so I would love, like, you know, family ties or different strokes or... You know, any type of thing, facts, like anything where it felt, I mean, like back in those days, like a problem was solved in 20 minutes. It's not like now. So all that stuff just felt fun and great. So those were the shows like, yeah, but like facts of life, different strokes, growing pains, love boat, like all those old, old, old shows. And at what point did it kind of click for you that you wanted to turn this into a career? Well, you know, it's funny because like, again, it wasn't like now where like you're kind of aware of what even, I mean, the term a showrunner was. Like, back then, it was, like, Aaron Spelling, and you, like, you knew, you watched their shows, but you didn't necessarily know what Aaron Spelling did. You would just see his name, or you'd see these names on the end of, like, Three's Company, and they're like, oh, those were showrunners. I just didn't know what they were called. 
So for me, growing up, and certainly as a person of color, like there wasn't a ton of, at least knowingly, um, Spike Lee was the first person, at least when I was in like middle school to high school, that I became aware of like, oh, there's this is exists, and I can there's somebody who who looks like me who's actually doing it. So around like I think like around like ninth grade, tenth grade, when like she's got to have it in school days came out, he used to do these books where he would, it was almost like a journal of his making of the movie. And he would journal from the moment he came up with the idea to like the writing process and the filming. And then he'd put the script in the thing along with stills from the production. And it was really a, my first take of like what, what eventually you will learn in college on like formatting and these, like I didn't know what a script looked like. And when I got to see it in his book and hear when he was talking, taking meetings with heads of, you know, studios, it just became like, more galvanized that like this is actually a real thing that I could probably really achieve or really do and um because nobody in my family or my world did anything like that so I, I really was talking about doing something that nobody in my family you know could sort of understand but I come from a family of on my dad's side they're all have their own businesses so they're all very like I don't necessarily need other people to make my stuff happen they were all self-made kind of people so I think that part of the family helped me you know, do something that, again, that I probably, if I hadn't seen Spike or people like that, I don't know if I would have done or thought I could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say people probably didn't even know what a showrunner was, let alone what they did, because right. I think that's still somewhat the case now, although it's changing. I, sure. I feel like because television itself, the landscape is shifting, yeah. and it feels more like people are paying attention to showrunners as if they're like a movie director. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the closest thing. Like, I think in the way that the director is revered in movies, the showrunner is that in TV. Because whereas a TV director will sort of come in, maybe do one, two, three, whatever the number is, they're still kind of like mercenaries. They're there and then they're gone. Whereas the showrunner is not just conceiving this episode, but they're trying to say, how does the series work for the entire 8, 10, 12, 22 episodes, what arcs are we telling? So they almost become like, I almost want to say like in the way that like, when you have like like Native American traditions and stuff where there's like storytellers who are not just painting a one-off, they're creating a world. Um, it's sort of very similar like to that. So you're involved, a showrunner is involved from hiring, you know, coming up with obviously the idea, but sometimes they're not initially the person coming up with the idea, but they're certainly there to hire the writing staff and run the writer's room and figure out what stories are we telling and what's the arcs and, you know, approving outlines, approving scripts, in charge of rewriting, casting, music, when you're on set, what the scene should feel like, you know, editing, to all the, you know, from the, from the very beginning to the end. I mean, you're the person sort of steering the ship in that way. And so that's, I mean, very similar to what like a director does in movies. Right. Yeah. So I think you kind of just did this, but the way that you just described a showrunner's job, is that how you orchestrate on Insecure? Or like, yeah, what I is mean, your sort of day-to-day operation job um, description? I mean, obviously the show Insecure is obviously based off Issa Rae's web series. That's awesome. I mean, obviously there's a whole reason why we're here. And so she and I sort of work very much. And we have, I think, uh, our relationship is very special, I think. And we have a very unique relationship that, you know, I think we both have a lot of respect for each other. Like, she allows me to do my job as a showrunner, but I also never lose sight of the fact that the show always has to be told through her lens, right? So the writers often joke in the room that we're mom and dad, and neither one of us makes a decision without talking to the other and and figuring out, you know, well, if we are gonna, if we are different on this, I mean, we're usually, I would say 90% of the time, we're pretty aligned in how we want to do the show. 
But then the 10% of times, I think we just sort of talk out, I'm thinking this, well, why are you thinking this? Or I'm thinking this, why are you thinking this? And then sort of want to understand, you know, obviously, and, and figure out what's sort of best for the show. So I think we have a very unique relationship from the writer's room and how we assemble the writer's room to all those things, the entire process. So we, we sort of work hand in hand in, in creating a lot of those things. But she's always very respectful. And, and I try to obviously always be very respectful in the same way. Yeah. So how do you two work together to build your team? Like, what kinds of people are you looking for when you're assembling? Yeah. Well, we were very blessed. Like, we brought back every single writer that we had the first season to the second season, and we hired two new writers. I think our vision in the beginning, when we were first assembling our staff, was, you know, the show has obviously, it's a, it's a comedy, so we know we need comedic people, but the show has a lot of drama mm-hmm. in the show as well. So we knew we wanted sort of a combination of, comedic writers, and we wanted some drama writers because we wanted to sort of have the, the breakup of that. And what I have found is, especially being a writer of color, I feel like, and a lot of times I've been on the staff where I'm the only person who looks like me. You might have, you know, six or seven guys, and it's no knock on people that went to Harvard, but you're like, there's six or seven guys who all went to Harvard, and they're amazing and talented and funny, but there's not six or seven people who look like me. And so sometimes I feel I feel like sometimes in writer's room, voices can be repeated. And so for us, it was how do we make sure that we don't have a repeat voice in the room? Like, we don't need another Issa in the room. We have, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like we have Issa, so we don't need another me. We have a me. So for us, it was how do we find, you know, six other people to be different and bring a different voice and energy. Like, I don't necessarily need to. So it was very purposeful that I knew from my experience that I didn't want to repeat people. I didn't want to repeat a a sense of humor or a POV because I felt like every person, at least for us, we wanted every person in the room to feel unique Mm -hmm. and and not feel like, oh, well, I have five of those. Because writer's rooms are tough. Like, you can run the danger of them becoming echo chambers of their own thoughts, right? And bits and, and similar personalities. And what you don't, that's the that's death to me. And I've seen it where the way to always keep it fresh is to always introduce new things, new elements, uh, so people don't feel repetitive. So for us, it was, again, obviously the show is about an African-American woman, so we knew we wanted those voices. But we also wanted you know, like different ages of African-American women and different sexual preferences of, of, of women and men. And so obviously, I, again, I'm a very aware as a person of color of making sure rooms feel that people feel like represented in the room, but certainly that things feel fresh and interesting. So we have, you know, single people, married people, people with kids, people not with kids. Uh, I think, I mean, our room has, I think, four gay lesbian writers. Like, so it's like, we try to like, you know, two drama writers, six comedy writers. You know what I mean? It's like people who do like various things and have various dark sensibilities, people who can tell really sweet stories, people who also give you a thing that does a, that turns a story on its head in a different way. So for the overall structure of our show, I think it works better that every person feels purposeful um, and unique and interesting in their own way and not feel like there's five of this guy or six of this girl or whatever. You're from L.A., mm-hmm. and the show is obviously based in L.A., and I yep. feel like L.A. is such a character it is. in the show itself, but do you have any writers who actually, like, aren't from L.A., and sometimes oh, they're yeah. like, oh, this is way too, like, inside, like, I'm not understanding. No, I mean, from there, I think or... the fun thing about being HBO is, like, what I've learned, too, is almost like, I think sometimes when you're on network TV, the tendency is to go broad, right, and to go, like, to make sure everybody understands HBO is the opposite. They're saying be uber specific to a point where if people are, they're either going to get it 
Or if not, they'll look it up or they'll ask somebody, which also promotes conversation, right? So Issa and I are both from LA. We like we when we connected, we both realized that we grew up a block over from each other, okay. which we didn't know. Like I went to school with her brothers. We went to the same elementary school. She, I'm, she's always good to remind me I'm ten years older than her, so she wasn't there when I was there, of course. But uh, but we certainly grew up in the same neighborhood of Windsor Hill, View Park, Crenshaw area of, of LA. So we just know that area very well. Um, one of our writers' assistants is from LA, but everybody else is just she and I. Everybody else is from you know Savannah, Memphis, Kansas City, uh, you know New, like New York, Dallas. So everybody else from our show is from San Francisco, all over uh, the rest of the country, Chicago. So yeah, it was like really she and I are the only people from LA. So we just try to be, you know, one of the things that we did going on going in early on when we were um, doing the pilot was, you know, I feel like in LA you see a very specific LA on TV, right? You either see which is like what Entourage did, at least for sure with HBO, right? You see Entourage, which is a very specific LA, right? And in a very specific world, right? It's like they're movie stars, so they're Beverly Hills and Malibu and all these sort of amazing places. Or it feels like when you see people of color, it's and it's no knock, it's like they're straight out of Compton or they're in Boys in the Hood. So it paints a very different, like, oh, I know this LA and I know this LA. But like East and I, East and I grew up in LA, that's neither one of those things, but has its own beauty and life that exists there too. And so for us, it was like, look, how do we show Windsor Hills View Park Inglewood that seems beautiful and amazing and becomes a character in the same way that Malibu and that became a character and Compton and, and those names, like those areas become a, like a character for us was how do we paint where we grew up as beautiful and, and amazing and we don't necessarily have to have a beach or a, a mansion to show the beauty and the smallness of our neighborhood, like very similar, I think in the same way that like Woody Allen or, or shows New York or Spike shows a certain new, like Brooklyn. It's like, for us, it was how do we make this neighborhood that people either think they know or say, there's a huge gap in between the 10 freeway in Compton. That's a lot of LA where most people in LA actually live. And so for us, it was how do we show that on camera and make that be a character too. And you guys did that in the with the fundraiser that yes. her character puts on. And yeah. she specifically says to like the room full of white people, yes. like, we can take them to a neighborhood that's close by yeah. and that has like these beautiful. That's neighborhoods. five minutes from them and looks amazing and right. beautiful and full of people of color who are doing well who look like them. And it's funny because the LA Times just wrote an article about how gentrified that neighborhood is becoming. And it it is. It used to be all white people and then they left and then they moved back because it's like, these are nice houses. <laughs> and half the price that the houses in Beverly Hills and it's the same architect. So yeah. Just to backtrack a little bit, I want to hear sort of the story of how you came to Insecure and like building sure. that first season. So I was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine at the time. I was in my second, I think I was in my second year there. And I saw that the show was being picked up as a pilot and that Larry Wilmore couldn't do it because he had to do the nightly show for Comedy Central. And so, I, I mean, I knew who Issa was. I was a fan of hers. My mom had told me about Issa like a year or two before. She was like, baby, there's a woman in the neighborhood doing a web series. And you know, you know how like, and like your mom calls and says all that stuff. So I so I knew who she was, but I and I knew that the the stuff was at HBO, but I didn't know like obviously where it stood or because it had been there for like two years at that point. And then I just saw it and I was just like, I was ready to run and be a showrunner. I just remember, I mean, I, I had a very cushy position for sure. And I reached, I reached out to my agent and I was like, yo, like, get me a meeting on this show. Like, this show is too important. It's too special. These opportunities don't come across every day. They, they don't happen every day. Uh, another agent at the agency went to college with Issa. So they were friends. And, and, and I think uh, they used to, Issa used to help and they used to all produce each other's plays at Stanford. 
And so um, her name was Ashley. And so um, Ashley was like, well, reach out to her. Like, like, why don't you write her a letter? And she was like a very like old school thing to do. But I wrote her a letter because I, I mean, I read the script and loved it. And I'd had, I'd worked in a nonprofit before I was a writer. I've had situations where somebody literally in the writer's room would ask me what on fleek means. Like I'd, I've had these like moments. And, and if you're a person of color, you, you have these moments where you have to, where people ask you to explain things as if you're the arbiter of everything African-American or any person of color. And uh, I just connect. I mean, it's just like a script that like, anybody can, and it's on a human level you can connect to, right? And like we're all insecure about something. We all have our issues, our hangups. So obviously I had had, um, you know, some more experiences like to her in the, in the real world. And so I wrote her a letter and um, I gave it to her and she, she read it. And I remember I went to a book signing for her and I just sat outside and we were just, I was talking to other people and then she just came outside and we talked for like, I mean, I want to say maybe 10 minutes and then that's probably being generous, but we just hit it off. I mean, you hit off somebody and then I was like, okay, cool, great. And so I figured we would have like a follow-up meeting to like actually talk more formally. And then they were like, yeah, he thinks you're cool. Like, let's do it. So then I just met with HBO and met with all the other people involved and that went well. But that, that's literally how, you know, but it, stuff like that just never happens. And so that's how I got involved. That was amazing. Yeah. Another one of like my favorite things about Insecure is, I mentioned before kind of like how LA is its own character. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think like the music does a great job of yeah. introducing certain tones or like emotions. And so how involved are you with music selection? Yeah, I mean, episode? we're, we're, I mean, our music, uh, well, first off, like, like we have amazing people on the music side. So Kier Lehman is our, is our um, music supervisor who has found amazing music for the show. Um, like Solange Knowles was like our musical concierge, if I could say, kind of. And um, just has great, I mean, obviously, it's funny because she was working on a seat at the table at the time. She's working on her album at the same time. And she was just like, kind of tell us about tracks. And you're just like, oh, that sounds dope. But then when it comes out and it just hits, you're like, oh, snap. That's what she was like talking about. You know what I mean? Okay. So so she was, and, and Raphael Sadiq from Tony, Tony, Tony and all his amazingness does the music. And so, so we have such a good group of people who are working on the music before so it's almost like a wealth of of riches in terms of like there's just so much and so but our our house director like Melina Matsukis who has an amazing ear and Issa has an awesome ear for music like Melina will edit the show and then just take a day to like play with music and she'll just like try to try music in the thing and her attention to detail to that and and Issa just have such a great ear in terms of the music for the show that like it just makes everything fun to do. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a song that you guys really wanted to use for something that you couldn't? Uh, well, there's always like money issues, right? Because you have like, because like last year we would have to like, you know, rob from Peter to pay Paul a little bit like budget wise. But there, I mean, HBO would be like, no, like let's find some extra money. I mean, there was always stuff that we're like, okay, well we can like do this. But weirdly the Kendrick Lamar song was the song that we had put in initially. And then it was, oof, this is a lot of, but it hadn't quite hit yet, right? And then we were like, but then it hit. And it was like, oof, that cost just went up. And then, (laughs) so we were like, well, maybe we should find another song because then it was out for a while. But every time we watched it with like, and we had found other music and we were like, maybe we'll go with some Snoop because that's very West Coast or or some Corrupt. And then we would cut against the style with something else. And no matter what we put in there, like nothing felt LA like Kendrick in that moment. And it was just like, Let's just pony up the money for Kendrick. You know what I mean? And it just was perfect. You know what I mean? It just was like, 
and that, and that's the one thing I've learned, like especially from HBO, is like, or at least I just learned from the craft. It's like a lot of times on network, you're always trying to figure out. I mean, like every show has a budget, right? You have to play within the sort of rules that you have to play in. But sometimes it is frigging about like not compromising sometimes and like taking your shots when you feel like, yo, I have to take this shot here. We have to like, there's something special about it, right? Because it's like, that's what TV to me is about. It's about moments, right? Like when I think about TV, I don't necessarily like remember the funniest joke in the Cosby show or the funniest joke on Friends. But what I think what people remember about TV is they remember moments, right? Like you remember like when Ross kissed Rachel, or you remember the moment when the Cosby family sang to Ray Charles. And like you remember specific moments like on The Office when Jim and Pam finally get, like you just, you know these moments, right? Because that's what sticks with people. I think that's why people love TV is like you get these moments with the, like these people you kind of fall in love with over and over and over and over again. And so it's just remembering that it's about those moments and like never losing sight of that. And even in the wake of, all the other production things you have to deal with that like never forget that these things are about other human beings having connections with like other human people. So like never losing sight on that that's the goal we're trying to do. So what are some of the moments that you were the most proud of from season one? Yeah, like for me, I felt like, you know, you read moments in scripts, right? And then you, but then they have to actually play out in real time. So for me, like the moments I love in the show are like when I read the script, the, the pilot, and the moment when she and Mo, um, Issa and Molly are there and she mentions um, broken, whatever. You can say it. It's, it's <laughs> the broken pussy of the thing. What's great in that moment is there's a very human thing, which is another friend trying to cheer up another friend, right? That's what the, it didn't matter what the words were. It's like, this is a moment that we've all been to where we see a friend of ours is hurting and we're trying to make that friend feel better, right? That's a very human thing. How she does it is just comedic and fun, but there's a, a human emotional thing that's happening between two people, right? And so when we were filming that and we got to see it in real time, it was like, oh, that's when I was like, this is the show. This is always the show. These two women, right? And obviously Issa's our main character, but these two women, their connection, especially now in the world where we still see so many women of color on reality shows fighting, arguing, doing this type of stuff, and not building up that they can have these sort of communal relationships that actually are work and functional and support each other and not tear each other apart, that that those are moments that feel amazing, you know, to me. Like the moment when Issa and Lawrence break up in episode seven, it's like a real fight. It's a real something, there's no jokes, it's not funny. It's a real thing that's actually happening, you know, like the end of Insecure when Issa is there on the couch with her, you know, like with mom, like those are real moments. And so for me, weirdly, like those are the moments that I actually love about our show are these little pockets of, you know, when she's on the, when she has the couch flashback and she's remembering all those times. Like for me, a lot of the emotional stuff in the show always, because I think like for me, I feel like every writer knows what they do well, right? And I feel like you sort of know, like I, I've never been, and I've always been envious of writers who can like have 50 jokes and like be super quick or could be really dark. And and we all have variances of those skill sets, you know, but that isn't like, I feel like my strength, I always try to say in the writer's room, like at the core of it though, what is this story about, right? Like what is the moment in this, what's the moment in the episode that we go, oh, this means something or what are we saying by this? You know what I mean? I, for me, I always just go back to what is at the core of this emotionally and why are they motivated to do this? What's happening with them as people? Because then all the, you can make it funny or dark or sad or whatever you're trying to do, but if you don't get to like the emotional core why, why people do something or 
So for me, I try to always ask those questions because I'm like, that's what resonates for me when I watch it. It's like, I want to feel something. Um, and so for me, it's always the moments in Insecure when our characters are really feeling something very hard. Like I always say, how do we ratchet that up? How do we make them feel something that is uncomfortable and or sad or happy? And how do we do those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, another really powerful moment I thought uh, came in the finale when uh, Issa wants to go back home. She wants to oh, leave yeah. Malibu. Molly kind of begrudgingly yeah. seems like she's going to drive her and they're sitting in silence. And then it turns into this really amazing moment where Molly is like, okay, well, practice on me what you're going to say. Right, but yeah. she still seems to kind of have her guard up a little bit. Yeah. She's still being begrudging in that sense. And then it turns into Issa apologizing to her, right. even though she's pretending to, sure. to speak to Lawrence. And that was really powerful because, again, it's this idea of, like, friendship mm-hmm. and that a friendship is an easier thing to to repair and it's going to have a little bit more of an endurance. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, like, um, like when we were breaking that story and Issa wrote that episode and that scene is so great because you're at, at the end, to me, it's almost like perfect bookend to the beginning, right? Like, to the moment we were talking about, right? It's like, in this moment in the pilot, Issa's making her friend feel better and in this moment at the end, Molly's making trying to make her friend feel better, right? So it is this kind of, like, perfect bookend to... Mm-hmm. Everything in between this is what we'll play with. But this is like these two people are always stopping all the crazy from running around them and that they're there to support each other. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I just love that that scene is a, a again, a sort, sort of a full circle moment of th- this other character going through something emotionally and that character being there for her. And there's lots of moments like that. Even when Issa is feeling guilty about sleeping with Daniel and Molly is like, would you ever do it again? And she's just like, no. And at first, when we wrote that scene, there was a lot of dialogue. And it just felt like this isn't a talky moment right now. This is like essentially like a character wanting to be free of this guilt. And it's like kind of silent and quiet. And um, so, it, again, I love those moments that it just feels like that. It feels real and mm-hmm. it feels organic. Yeah. And so season two is coming back. Yes. July 23rd. July 23rd. What, if anything, can you say about it? No, I can't. <laughs> no, I can't say anything. <laughs> Any, uh, any themes that we're looking at? I could say the themes. I could say the themes. Like I feel like Issa says it best too when she goes like, "Imagine your friends who are like single, fresh off a breakup, and the things, the mistakes they make, and the things they do when they're getting back out there." And our characters will probably also make those same mistakes. And so for us, it's like again, like I think the tendency or the thing is like we're trying to be eighty percent of what you already love about the show if you like it. And then, like, 20% like new things. And so, for us, it's like, because you want to give people what they love about the show and not deviate, but you also have to insert new things. We have new characters coming in, expanding our characters' worlds. But, you know, I think the, I think thematically what we're trying to explore is, like, these are people who are hurting, right? The, you know, Molly's trying to, you know, she had her thing with sort of being crushed by, like, having, she has these fairy tale things in her life. And Issa and Lawrence are obviously coming off being broken up. And so, you know, I think it's people who are hurting in their lives and sort of, and sort of what we do when we're hurting. And I think that's a thing we're like kind of dancing around and the things, the choices that people make when they're in those raw kind of vulnerable places. And sometimes they're smart choices, sometimes they're not. Um, it's more fun when they're not. But I think we're just trying to explore those things. Mm-hmm. And, and just again, just keep, how do we keep building out the world so it feels fresh? But again, also, because I think the tendency is to sometimes feel like, oh, we have to like now do something like start jumping the shark and doing crazy stuff. And I think our show, what's good about our show, I think it exists really well in this sweet spot of like basicness where we're not trying, like we almost want to go smaller. The tendency is to want to 
beat it and make it more crazy. And what happened last year was like all that stuff happened from real organic. You understood how we got to episode eight. So I think our tendency now is to just worry about are we telling the best stories for this character based on where they're at and not worry about, but last season in episode eight, this happened. It's like we can't. We can't be last year. We have to be this year. And what's interesting in the stories inevitably kind of start to tell you this is where you can go. You know what I mean? And I think that's where we're just trying to be open to. Yeah, that's really exciting. And another project that you're doing now yes. is your true TV show. Yes. Upscale. Yes. And so you're kind of putting yourself in front of the camera, which is which different. Is, which is weird and new. And even being here in New York, like seeing going in the subway and seeing like your face in the subway or like on these kiosks, it's, it's so weird. Yeah, I saw you shared an Instagram video yes. of where you had found yourself. Yes, I had found, my, <laughs> I found myself personally and physically uh, in the subway <laughs> in dark places. Uh, yeah, no, but it's like, it's funny because, you know, on the Insecure posters, there's Issa and she was just saying how weird it was. And when I was looking at the poster, I was like, no, it's not weird. It's totally fine. And then you see yourself in there. You're like, no, this is weird. This is not, this is not normal. Yeah. yeah. So explain for anyone who doesn't know yet about the, the idea behind the show. So the idea behind the show, Let's Get With Prince Penny, is um, I grew up, like, I, like we were saying, like a lot of us, how we grow up, we just sort of do whatever our parents did, right? And as I was like just growing up and getting older, and this has nothing to do with money, it was just like I was just being exposed to more. Like growing up, we'd go to the grocery store. My dad would buy whatever hamburger meat, craft singles. You're making cheeseburgers and, you know, you grab whatever beer, Budweiser, like whatever he was drinking. And that was it. And I thought that was great. Like that was great. And then you get older and you go, well, maybe I don't just have to go to the grocery store. Maybe I can go to Trader Joe's. Maybe I can get my meat at Whole Foods. Maybe I can go to a butcher. And I'd spend maybe $2 more, but the quality of what I'm going to get is, like, amazingly better. Oh, wait, there's a store that just sells cheese? I don't have to just do this process? I can get, like, blue and, you know, cheddar and all these other kinds of cheddar. How many kinds of blue cheese are there? And it's, again, it's not about price. It's just knowing having knowing there's more choices out there. And I was just having those experiences, not just with, obviously, things like meat and cheese, but whether it was starting learning what craft beer was and champagne and wine or cigars or, you know, clothes and suits and going to a tailor, you know, like I'd buy my suits off the rack. Like all, and, I, and you still can. It's, it's things you're already doing in your life, but knowing that those things are, if you want to do something else, those things are also attainable. Mm-hmm. But like we do an episode around the theme of uh, date night, but then one of the segments of date night is just about etiquette. It's just like how to upscale your etiquette. So that that's not money. That's not anything. It's just like, again, like feeling free to ask questions and knowing there's other choices out there. And if you want to do those things, you can. Like for us, it was never about doing the show as if like, none of the show is subjective, right? Because I feel like I love Anthony Bourdain. I love Chef's Table. I love No Reservations. But I never wanted to put like subjectively my taste onto you, right? Because I don't want you, I don't want to do that vice versa. I wouldn't want to watch a show where it's a guy telling me this wine is the cool wine or this, because I'm like, the show's not that. Like the show is just saying, it's objective. It's just saying, hey, this is the world of wine or champagne or whatever. Find what you like in there. I'm just letting you know there's more than probably what you thought. But whatever you want to do in that world, once you get there, is up to you. It's just know it exists for you. So that's, I think, was always very important in our show. And we never went to any like big chain places we always went to like a shoe cobbler we went to like and it's funny because as we were like a tailor you know like it was like you buy a suit off the rack and then what I was learning was the suit off the rack kind of costs the same as a suit being made and that suit fits better and the suit you buy off the rack you still have to get tailored because it's made for like a person who's five six a certain weight but it doesn't mean it's going to fit me because the shoulders could be off or this or that you still got to get it tailored anyway so it was like well let's just cut out the middleman like I might spend a hundred bucks more 
But again, it's going to look amazing because now I can not only when it's if you tailor your suit, you can pick your buttons, you can pick your cuffs, you can pick your lapel, you can pick the stitching inside, like the lining inside. You just have more options that are available to you. So for me, it was just about because I would again, I'd walk into places. People say, do you need help? And no, because nobody wants to sound stupid or seem because those worlds are intimidating. So for us, it was just like, how do we make the show open for anybody? Again, you're already doing these things in your life. But how do you do them like a tiny bit better? Mm -hmm. It's interesting, too, that you say that you, like, avoid going to big chains or anything because it almost brings an element of, like, economy into it also where, like, if you're, if you're in, a, like, L.A. and you're shopping more local, there mm -hmm. are, like, options out there that are also happening to support a small business, right. but it's not necessarily more expensive. It's just something different. It's and just you might different. have to go out of your way to find it. And so you're kind of trying to help people. Yeah. And it, I think too, it's like, it's funny because we were talking, we went to the shoe cobbler and it was also like learning what people do, right? Mm -hmm. So you go to a shoe cobbler and I mean, I was like most guys, my shoes get, and I think women are much more hip to how to get their shoes repaired or kept I up. I just did it for the first really? time this year. How and you I feel? feel like a brand new woman. You feel like a brand new woman. You feel I like a grown like, up, these right? shoes, I like, I would have just thrown them away. That's the what past. we all do. And we just I'm throw like, them away. Forty dollars. I have like a brand new pair of boots. A brand new pair of boots, and right. that and that's the thing. Like you, I didn't know like cobblers resole shoes, restitch shoes, and yeah. they they like for women they'll put a little thing on the bottom of your heel so the heels don't like the heels last longer. Yeah. But also learning that cobblers those don't fix shoes. They fix like all like leather goods, jackets, yeah. purses, backpacks, belts, all these other things. That I was just like I didn't even know. When I was talking to the guy, he was like, what's crazy is he was like, 40 years ago, this is how everybody lived. It wasn't like a thing to go to a tailor or go to a butcher or go whatever. It was like, that's how you had to operate because there wasn't a store that did all of them. You know what I mean? So I think that's the thing too. It kind of brings it back to like how things just kind of used to be. And the, there's a personal relationship there, right? Like we went to the butcher and he's like, what's great is when my customers come in, not only do I can know your family and know sort of what you like, but I can recommend stuff to you. Because like when you go to the grocery store, like the big places, like they're just working and God bless them, they got to work, but they don't remember you from somebody else. But the guy can say, hey, don't buy these steaks this time or don't buy this chicken. I actually got this and I think you'll like that. And that's the stuff that feels like, oh, this person knows me, knows my taste, knows what I like. I don't have to like come in and explain. Or they might make me more open to try something new. So I think for me, I was, again, I was having those experiences in real life and and I also just feel like I never see people of color talk about that stuff. For me, it was always like, and it's cool that it's guys like Bourdain or, or Zimmer and pe people like that, but I just felt like, one, like, where's my generation of people who are into this and where are people who look like me? And so for us, it was important, too, to have, like, we did a segment on beer where we went to a brewery that was run by two women, which you don't see a lot of women in the world of beer uh, who, had their own, who had their own line of beer. But we also would, went to a thing where we went to a manicure, pedicure spot that was run by an African-American man, that's four men. So it was just like, again, how do you turn these things? Because like, like millennials now, like there's just a thing that's like, there's no sort of like limits to sort of, this person does that and that person does this. It's like, it's all open. Who cares what people do? It's just like the world's reflective of that. So for us, it was like, how do we make that also exist in our show? And also I feel like millennials for better or worse get a reputation for like not having the patience to stay with a, like a single job yes. for decades and right. the types of people that are cobblers or you know craft beer people they spend a lot of time right. perfecting what they do and it's it's great to like showcase right. that and be like it's okay if you just do this one thing but you do it very very well right but i think millennials too are different that once they find something that they like and like this is my they are committed to it right because there is this sort of resist there is this resistance to like 
I don't want to just copy a bunch of things. And also, like, I don't want to just go to the whatever the store is and just buy it in bulk. Like, I want, it to, I want things to feel unique and interesting and specific. And I think that also is this in our show. It's the specificity of a thing. And, and even though I may not do it, I can appreciate it. You know what I mean? So I think that was a, an important part of the show, too. Mm-hmm. Was there a single thing that you did or learned about that kind of surprised you the most or that has stuck with you the most since you did it? I mean, there are a few segments that I think have have stuck with me, like the shoe cobbler thing I thought was like like just from an informational standpoint. But the wine segment, which was because we did an episode on wine, you know, everybody's giving somebody a gift as a bottle of wine, which is kind of a standard thing. And I was like, look, we all sort of do the similar thing, which is we sort of figure out is this a $5 friend, a $10 friend, a $20 bottle friend. And then we try to guess if they're a red or a white person, but we have no idea what red or white, whatever. And then but, they're never going to tell you, like, I mean, of that was a not. terrible bottle. Of course, they just, cause, because, because they're just grabbing it and running out the store or whatever. Right. And what, what was great about the bottle of wine, about the, the gift giving thing, he was like, stop, don't think about having to know the like cabs or this. He's like, if you know that stuff, great. But he was like, I want to know, and when you go buy a bottle of wine, tell the person, describe the person, right? So, like, are they a person that wears a lot of color? Do they wear a lot of blacks or whites? Are they an adventurous person? Are they more of a safe person? Do they love to travel? Are they more of a homebody? Do they? So he said, because the more I learn about the person, I can start to like recommend wines that that person might like. If they may like a more bold wine or a more subtle wine, do they? Do they have a more fun, bubbly personality? Are they a more serious person? And he said. So that starts to tell me more about what they're because they because he's like look how we dress what we watch the way we do things is a ref, is a reflection of our personality right and so he said wine falls in that same thing or if you had an amazing time let's say you went to Italy and you guys went to this little town in Florence and you had such a great time there tell me that because then I can recommend a wine from Florence and you can say hey this wine made me think of our trip and now you're giving the bottle. It has a sentimental attachment, not just like, here's this bottle of like yellowtail I grabbed as I was running out the door. You know what I mean? So, so that to me was so, because it was, a, again, it's a, the thing we're talking about. It's about having a human connection to somebody and not just being like, here's the thing I just did out of obligation, but I'm actually trying to give you something that actually means something. And it doesn't matter the price point of it. It's just, here's the emotional meaning behind the thing. And so for us, it was stuff like that. I've just been like, wow, I never would have thought about it from that perspective. And so we're not just trying to like upscale, like it's easy to say like upscale the tangible things like suits and shirts and ties and and, and like the, that, but it's upscaling like the little details of something. Yeah, there's definitely a sort of attachment um, to that sort of like sentimental yeah. aspect. And like you said, it doesn't cost anymore. It doesn't do that. cost It's anymore. just like a different way of right. framing your thinking. Yes. And that's the thing on the show. It's like you're we're already doing, you're already like we did an entertaining at home thing where I was like in college. I would order pizza, I'd drink out of red cups, you'd buy the Columbia CDs for a penny that you get that was that pyramid scheme, you know what I mean? And then I was like, but how do you up, like how do you upscale that? So instead of doing pizza, we do charcuterie. Instead of doing regular red cups and Jack and Coke and, and and like Kirkland vodka, we're like actually making cocktails now and in like glasses, you know what I mean? So it's like again, we're already doing these things, but how do we just do them a tiny bit better? Yeah, I do think like the first time that I had glassware in my cabinet, I was like, "Oh, I'm an adult." I'm, I'm a grown up. <laughs> this, is, this is what this is like. Yeah, and, but it's, and it and then stuff like that then inevitably sets a whole vibe 
for the night and everything else, right? It like says, okay, and again, like of course we still do retcons. I mean, of course situations call for that. It's not, it, it, like this isn't like, oh, now I have to live my whole life like this, like every single time, but it is like, if I want to do these things and if I want to do more grown up stuff, like I know how and I'm able to do those things. And I'm, I'm again, I'm, you know, we did a workday episode that was just upskilling coffee and learning more about coffee, upskilling like your sandwich, like instead of maybe, you know what I mean? It's like tiny little things, upskill your office space. That's not about, again, it isn't about money, it's just like how to elevate it to a tiny bit better. Find Upscale with Prentice Penny on True TV, as well as on Amazon Prime and iTunes. And catch new episodes of Insecure starting July 23rd, every Sunday night on HBO, right after Ballers and Game of Thrones. A pretty great lineup, if you ask me. If you're a fan of showrunners, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. It really makes a difference and helps other TV lovers find the show. This episode was produced by Steve Parkhurst and Brad Fisher, with special thanks to Ali Janini. Showrunners is going on a summer break, but we'll be back this fall with more interviews featuring the amazing people that make TV shows we love. In the meantime, keep binging. Keep binging.